I will make a confession to you as we get started. Um, it's probably only in the singing of nothing but the blood uh, does my sinful and prideful heart get very excited and seem okay with hearing such offbeat clapping um, <laughs> as, I, uh, as I heard this morning. You know? but, but I'm encouraged because you were clapping. I mean, what a great step forward. Um, you were clapping and you were singing. And we'll learn in time to do those two things together. Um, Much like walking and chewing gum. Uh, We'll get clapping and singing. We'll get it down. Um, It was really good to hear that. It was really good to hear it um, as a congregation, to hear everybody sing. Um, This morning, uh, it's a unique morning, not only because we're we're having a lunch this afternoon, a grace gathering, uh, but the timing of the grace gathering uh, falls at a really unique time of the year for us because it's... This week or next week, technically, if you were to go on the day, it would probably be Tuesday or Wednesday. I can't remember off the top of my head. But either this Sunday or next Sunday um, will mark the two-year anniversary of our Sunday gatherings as Redemption Hill Church. Um, it's hard to believe. It's been two years. It's been two years, and it's only been two years uh, since we started gathering here on Sunday mornings to, to worship God together. And there is so much to be thankful for. Um, there's so much to be thankful for. One of the reasons we want to take the time of the Grace Gathering after the service to get together and talk is because we want to celebrate and to share all the things that God's grace has been doing in this church and through this church because we never want to get into the place where we forget that it's God's grace that enables us to be who He's called us to be. We want to take the time to celebrate what He's doing because we should. We should take the time to stop, to recognize God's grace at work amongst us and to share that joy, to share that grace, and to celebrate that grace and allow that grace to renew our hearts, to renew our affections, to renew our sense of, of purpose as his people. So that's what we're going to do. But at the same time, that renewal of God's grace and that renewal of our joy in his grace is one of the most powerful safeguards we have to one of the things that I'm most fearful for um, in relation to our church. One of the things I'm most fearful for in relation to my own heart, um, one of the things I'm most fearful for in relation to your heart And it's that we will get sidetracked, really we'll get deceived by looking at all of the busyness, all of the things that are happening, all of the exterior growth and busyness, and make the assumption that because there's busyness and exterior growth, there's got to be interior depth that goes along with it. That's one of the things I'm most fearful for. I mean, two years ago, when we came to this building uh, to have our first public Sunday service, if I remember correctly, I think there were like 54 adults. I think we had almost 30 kids. I mean, we were a glorified children's church service. And in just two years, God has done whatever God has wanted to do. And I can't really explain it. I can't say that I actually expected it. But any given Sunday, we average somewhere around 250 plus people. Um, And it continues to go. And there are lots of things going on that I think some of us know about and some of us don't know about. And we're going to share those things. But I don't want us to wake up one day and realize that for all the busyness and all the growth and all the good things that we see happening, that we had forgotten. Our hearts had strayed from who God is for us and the strength and the dependency that we need upon His grace. We wake up one day realizing that with all the stuff going on, we've been deceived into thinking that there's actually depth to go along with it. That's the great American evangelical illusion. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been talking about what it is to lose our illusions, and we've been attacking them one by one. And God, through Solomon, has taken a sledgehammer to the things that deceive us, the things that capture our hearts and draw our hearts away from the goodness of God for us in Jesus. And one of the things, as a people, that is most deceiving one of the illusions that is most powerful and, and really most, most plausible, which is what makes it so dangerous, is that we can tend to look around and see all these things going on and we can see numerical growth and we can see the busyness of, of people and the service of people and we can make the mistake of thinking that there's a depth that goes along with it. And we wake up one day to realize we're a mile wide as a people but only an inch deep. And we're a mile wide as a community, but only really an inch deep in our dependency, in our desperation, and our passion for the grace of God and the gospel. That is the great American 
evangelical illusion. And so this morning, what I want to do in, in the time that we've got is I want us to listen to Solomon. I want us to listen to what God has to say to us through this man and through this text because if anyone can help us, if anyone can help us stay straight in our worship of God, if anyone knows what it is to wander, to have felt the presence of God, to have seen the work of God, to have experienced the glory of God, and yet at the same time wake up one day and realize that their heart has wandered far from God, it's Solomon. And one of the things about Ecclesiastes, I think we've talked about maybe in the beginning of the series, that nowhere in Scripture, in the books of history that record the life and the ministry of Solomon, do we ever find any kind of concrete record that Solomon ever really repented of his sin towards God. That he ever really repented of his wandering towards God. There are particular things in Scripture that would lean us to think that that kind of repentance did take place in Solomon. And a lot of scholars and And this is what I want to talk about and how I want us to kind of look at this text this morning. A lot of scholars believe that the book of Ecclesiastes is a backward-looking Solomon. It's a repentant Solomon. It's a Solomon at the end of his rope, at the end of his life, at the end of his wandering, at the end of his quest for autonomy and significance apart from God, having experienced the powerful grace of God and his humility that one time, at one time asked God to only know him and to have wisdom. A man who knew God and was used by God and at the same time wandered far from God. Lots of people think this book is his look backwards upon that and his call to the people of God, to the people of Israel, to fear God, to love God, to find significance and purpose and meaning in God alone. And so when we talk about the great American evangelical illusion and the tendency that we have to think bigger and bigger and bigger means deeper and deeper and deeper, There's nobody who's going to do a better job to lead us away from that and call us back to what God is calling us to than Solomon because he's experienced it. He knows what it feels like to have known God, to have tasted the grace of God, to have seen his life been used by God, but then to wake up one day and realize that he had all the right answers, all the wisdom, all the experiences, could answer any question that was brought to him, but When it came down to it, his heart was far from God. I think that's the place where a lot of us find ourselves more often than we care to admit. I think we wake up to what a lot of people call these lives of of quiet desperation where we know the right answers. We've done all the right things. We continue to do all the right things. But when we're alone and when we get really honest with ourselves, our hearts are really quite far from, from God. And the crazy thing is we find ourselves, even in those moments, having the capacity to tell other people how they should live. We have all the the right answers, but we've missed God. And so this morning, I want us to listen to Solomon. I want us to slow down and I want us to listen to what God has to say to us through Solomon, because I think by God's grace, what he's going to say to us can help protect us along the way. As God continues to do what God does in the life of this church and things continue to move forward and things continue to happen, I think what Solomon has to say to us this morning will help guard our hearts. Will help guard our hearts from falling prey to the illusion of of depth when there is no depth. And I think for some of us, it will help draw us back. I think for some who are in that place right now who do all the right things and have all the right answers, but when you're honest with yourself, your heart is nowhere near to the presence of God, I think what he has to say will help draw you back. And so I'm going to pray, and then as we've been doing, I'm going to read and I'm going to talk. And then we're going to read and I'm going to talk. And we're going to trust God to do what God does through his scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we celebrate your grace at work in our lives, and not only as individuals, but as a people. Lord, we celebrate the work of your grace and the power of your good news, your gospel, to transform our sinful and rebellious hearts to draw us back to you, to give us desires and passions to want what you want. Lord, that obedience to you becomes a delight to our hearts. We want to celebrate the grace that you have poured out on us that makes that a reality, Lord, and we ask that in the time that we've got this morning, you, by your Holy Spirit, calm our frustrations, calm our distractions. Give us ears to hear this morning what you have to say to us through your word. Help our very prideful and self-atoning hearts to surrender 
to surrender this morning to what you have to say through your word. We ask this, Lord, that our lives will continue to be transformed into the image of your Son, that your name may be made known in this place, that your glory may go forward through this people. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's see what Solomon has to say to us, guarding us against this American evangelical illusion and calling us back, calling us back from our shallowness that's robbed us of of joy and passion. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, let's go verse 1. He's going to say two things in verse 1, and then we're going to move a little bit quicker. First thing Solomon's going to say, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1, is guard, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. First thing that Solomon is going to say to help, help us as a people avoid this American evangelical illusion and to help draw you back, back to the presence of, of God in a tangible and real way is this encouragement, this reminder, really this, this dictate to you to guard your steps. Approach God rightly. So what Solomon is talking about very literally here is the worship of God that would take place in the first century in the temple. See, the people of God, in the time of God before Jesus had come, to come and worship God in the temple, they would have to go through a series of cleansings, a series of washings that would symbolize the removal of their shame, removal of their guilt, the removal of the consequences, in some sense, of their sin that's been left on them by what they've done. Then they would approach the temple for the sacrifice, and they would make an appropriate sacrifice to God for the sins that they have committed the sins they will continue to commit. And only through that cleansing and only through that sacrifice could they then enter the presence of God, but only to a certain degree because the presence of God in its most full and most powerful place dwelt in the Holy of Holies that only a high priest could go into one time of year. But the people of God understood that to approach God, to come into the presence of God, to worship God rightly, they had to guard their steps. There was a reverence. There was an awe. There was an understanding of what motivated them to come to God, to worship God. Solomon is saying that when we gather together to worship God, in the public gathering of God's people, to worship Him and to celebrate Him, there needs to be a sense of understanding as to who we come into, who we come to worship, why we come to worship Him, what difference He makes in our lives. Now, we know something that Solomon and the people of Israel in this time didn't know. We know that all those washings, all those cleansings, all those animal and and, and grain sacrifices for sin were only pointing to something. They were only pointing to the final sacrifice and the final cleansing that would one day come in the person of Jesus. We know something they didn't know, that Jesus on the cross in his life lived in our place, in his death paying the price for the sin, for the life that we live instead of the one we were created to live, makes that final sacrifice in our place, forgiving us, exhausting the wrath of God's holiness on sin in our place, offering forgiveness to us for our sin and cleansing from our guilt and our shame. We don't have to go through that series of washings and sacrifices that Solomon and these people did. But we need to understand as well, because of that, who God is when we come into his presence to worship as his people. They had a sense of reverence and awe and in some sense a holy fear to come before God without having gone through the right appropriation of cleansings and sacrifices because they knew the holiness of God and the sinfulness of their hearts. We, on the other hand, know of the grace of God, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of our own hearts, but the grace of God with all more motivation, with a greater sense of joy, should we understand whose presence we come into, whose presence we call out to know more intimately. If we are going to be a people that guards against this illusion, this illusion that bigger means deeper, that more stuff means more faithfulness, if we're going to guard against that kind of illusion, one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to remember to approach God rightly because of who he is, who we are, and what he has done for us in our place. We, more than Solomon, we, more than the people of first and second century Israel, should have a greater appreciation for the holiness of God and the grace of God that has been poured out on us through his son, Jesus. But the problem is, we tend, to, we tend to think 
that this idea of worshiping God and coming into the presence of God is a particular event that we come and, and we just give ourselves to at a particular moment and then the rest of our lives can be divorced from that thing. So here's one of the things this illusion creates and here's one of the things that a right understanding of worship that Solomon is going to give us is going to help guard against. A lot of people think that they can, they can come to church, they can come to this public gathering of God's people and they can come and they can be respectful and they can act the right way and they can do the right things and they can sing the right songs and they can pray the right prayers and they can check off of their list the thing that they need to do to make their conscience and make their soul feel right before God for all the decisions that they make throughout the week. Lots of people approach the time of God's people gathered together to worship God as something that they have to do to assuage their conscience, to satisfy their sense of guilt for the decisions and the lives that they live throughout the week. And that is not a right understanding of the right worship of God. The right worship of God is about having a biblically accurate view of who God is and a biblically accurate view of who we are and a biblically accurate view of what he has done for us in Jesus and then live in biblically accurate ways in response to it. That's what worship is. And worship was never meant to be an event that we come to and participate in. Worship was never even meant for God's people back then to be an event that they came and participated in the temple and they would go out and do whatever they wanted for the rest of their life. Worship is something that we were wired by God to do. We, in fact, in some sense, are worshipers. At every turn, with every action, with every word, with every decision, our hearts are worshiping something someone, something, some end. We were created as worshipers. And so to divorce the right worship of God from the rest of our life is to have a foolish view of worship. And this is what Solomon is going to talk about in the rest of this chapter. A foolish approach to the worship of God. What it looks like for a fool to try to worship God with his life. And one of the things that happens is that we turn worship into an event. We talk about particular worship music and worship styles and worship times and worship things. And we cultivate this culture that views this worship of God as a thing that we come and participate in instead of a response from our heart with all of our life. Guard your steps. Guard your steps. And for some of us, that's really not your problem. You don't come to the gathered worship of God's people on Sunday with the expectation that if you go along with the things and you do all the right things and you say all the things that you're supposed to say and do what you're supposed to do, then your conscience is clear before God. You know that's not the case. You've tasted of the grace of God and the goodness of God in the face of Jesus. The gospel has moved your heart. But you find yourself in one of those places where God feels so far, so far. So many things going on, so many things that you were doing. So many good things that it looked like your life was given to. But you got caught in the illusion that all the busyness and all the stuff and all the activity and all the outward obedience meant that there was depth, that your soul was going deep into the realities of God. All the information, all the things you learned, all the things you read deceived you into thinking that your heart was really going deep into the grace of God. Here's what Solomon says when it comes to worshiping God with all that you are. When it comes to your life being lived as a response to who God is for you in Jesus, guard your steps. Guard your steps. Pay careful attention to your heart. One of the beautiful things about the Bible and this metaphor of guarding your steps and your feet is all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, your feet, the way that you walked, where you went, was a metaphor of depicting the direction that your life was heading in the thing that you were chasing after. So one of the ways that Solomon's encouragement to us not only helps shape us as, our, as a people in our time together, but in you, in your relationship with God, is his encouragement to watch the direction of your heart. Watch the things that your feet are chasing after. Watch the direction that your feet are pointed in. What is it that you feel like you need? What affections are driving your behaviors? What affections is your heart gravitating to? Guard your heart. Guard your steps. Watch your life closely. It's as simple as this. 
What things in your life have historically stirred your soul and stirred your affections towards God? What are they? I mean, what things in your life have historically stirred your affections for the goodness and the grace of God? I mean, for some of you, it's a book. For some of you, you just get a book and you get your Bible, you get some paper, you get a pen, and you just connect. You're just drawn to the grace of God and the scriptures and the way that God has used men and women throughout history to just write and to share about that. And it's just there for some of you. Man, it's just you in prayer outside in God's beautiful creation with your Bible, and you just have this capacity to connect to God, and your affections for Him are stirred. What stirs your affections for God? To figure those things out, remind those things, remind yourself of those things, and then go after them. Don't let anybody tell you exactly what has to stir your affections. Your affections for the gospel may not be stirred the same way mine are. What has stirred your affections? Go after them. And then be honest. Guard your steps. What things, what things draw your heart away from that? What things draw your heart away from the affection towards God? From the affection towards the gospel? I'll never be in here standing here telling you what not to do in some sense if the Bible doesn't tell you not to do. I'm not going to tell you to watch this or listen to this and don't see this. But listen, if all the time you spend on the computer doesn't stir your affection for Christ, cut it out. Uh, cut it out. Seriously, what, what are you losing? Other than a deception, other than a continued behavior, thinking that you're going somewhere when you're waking up that mile wide and that inch deep, what are you really losing? And what things stir your affections? What things rob them? Let them go. Walk away. Just let go and walk away. You don't need them. Guard your steps. Guard your steps when you approach God in the gathered worship of people. Guard your steps. Guard your steps in the rest of your life as your life is a living response to God's goodness and God's grace. We have to approach the worship of God rightly. But second, that's not all he says. When you approach Draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. So worship, worship with all of our heart and all of our souls and all of our life is a biblically faithful understanding of God and a biblically faithful response to him. That's as simple as I can make it. A biblically faithful understanding of God and a biblically faithful response to him either gathered as his people or individually in your life before God. But when we come to worship him, the first thing we've got to do might very well be one of the hardest things we've ever done. And that's listen. We've got to listen. The thing that makes listening so difficult is it requires a posture of humility. To listen requires a posture of humility. It requires ears to hear. It requires stopping your mouth, stopping your intention, stopping your desire to speak and shape. It means sitting in a posture of humility. Around here, we talk a lot about surrendering to the word of God. When we gather together as God's people to worship God together corporately, we want to approach him rightly, but we want to stop and we want to listen. We want to listen to what God has to say to us through his word. The way that we understand a right understanding of who God is and a right and faithful response to him is by listening to what he has to say to us about himself through his word. We've got to learn to cultivate a heart, a soul, and ears that want to listen to what God has to say. That want to surrender our hearts, surrender our souls, surrender our wills and our intentions to what he has to say. This is why when we come in here, when we gather every week as God's people to worship him rightly, the scriptures are the centerpiece of everything that we do. They're the center. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Everything else about what we do can go away. We want to be a people who listen to what God has to say to the scriptures. We want to sing them. We want to read them. We want to pray them. 
And we want to surrender to their teachings. The problem is we just don't honestly want to do that. We have opinions. We have intentions. We have ways we think things should go. The Bible says that there are ways that seem right in the eyes of men. And we have lots of those things. But we don't want to actually believe the rest of the verse. That in the end, all of those things lead to death. We want to come into the worship of God, not only gathered as a people, but in our lives throughout the week and presume, honestly, upon God. Telling Him what He should do. Telling Him how He should be and what He should do and how He should work in our lives and in this place. And that's just not, that's just not a right approach to cultivating depth and humility. We make the scriptures central to all that we do because we need to learn to listen. We preach the way that we preach, going through books of the Bible for the most part, because there are things that God speaks to us in his word that we as sinful people don't want to hear. And I as a sinful human want to say certain things all the time. And by preaching through the scriptures the way that we do, we have to deal with things that we would otherwise not want to deal with because God deals with them. So, Verse by verse and book by book in our time together, as long as God tarries, we work to cultivate souls and ears that surrender to listen to God because there's encouragement and there's correction. There's encouragement and there's rebuke. And we want to be children. We want to be children who come and who listen. We want to settle ourselves, settle our souls, settle our wills, settle our desires, and listen to what our good Father has to say. We want all that he has to say because we trust who he is and his intentions toward us. Nobody has taught me more about this recently than my son. Um, he, he teaches me a lot. Um, and I try to tell him, but it goes to his head. Um, so we have to watch that encouragement. But we were praying the other night, and, uh, and he was praying, and, and he prayed and he asked God, let's get this, he asked God to help his heart love being spanked. Get this, he asked God to help his heart love being spanked. And we spank, he's a big boy. I don't give him a whole lot of time to sit and think. Um, <laughs> it, it, that seems counterproductive for me. Um, that's a whole other sermon and issue. But he prayed. He said, God, help my heart love, help my heart love to be spanked because mom and dad need to rescue my heart. And I prayed that, that that was sincere. I don't know. And I prayed that God would answer it. But we come in here as adults, men and women, in the process of being changed by God. And we oftentimes don't have the humility my four-year-old does. We don't have the expression of trust towards our father that in that moment, and I hope it was sincere, my son, my son expressed to God in his relationship to me. We don't want to trust that sometimes what God has to say, if we would just listen, will correct us. We want to be encouraged all the time. We want all the happy, all the good. We don't want to deal with the sin that lurks inside of our hearts. Solomon said, if we're going to not be deceived by this illusion, this American evangelical illusion of big means deep. We're going to have to learn to approach God rightly, and we're going to have to learn to listen. When we come together as a people, when we do that right, God becomes the centerpiece of our time together. Who God is becomes the central reality about why we gather and what we celebrate. His word becomes primary, not ours. His word what he says becomes exalted, not what I say and not what we say. We learn to assume a posture of surrendering and listening because as we listen, as we learn more accurately who he is and as we learn to surrender our understandings and our will to him, that's when the good stuff begins to happen. That's when change really begins to take place. Fools, Solomon said, have narrowed the worship of God down to a particular event. 
a single event that they come into and go on and never really understand with any Godward affection of their soul what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're offering these sacrifices and doing all these things and going through all the motions with no real affection towards God. It's just become a habit. They come and they sing and they do and they show up and they talk and they leave and they do all the things they're supposed to because it's become a habit. Maybe because there's some peer pressure in it. Maybe friends or spouses have, have pressured you into it or maybe you just want to be seen a particular way. A pretense has grown up in your heart and you don't want to be seen as someone who doesn't do these kinds of things. But the fools make sacrifices, Solomon says, with no wisdom at all, no depth at all. They come into the worship of God not only together in the temple but in their lives and they go through all the stuff. But it doesn't come from an affection towards God for who He is. They approach God wrongly with no wisdom, with no humility, with no reverence. And they presume upon God to come and speak in His presence and offer sacrifices with no affection towards Him. It's foolish worship of God. It's a foolish worship of God that in this culture will gather a lot of people. A lot of people. My fear, my fear is that we never become a people. We get so focused on all the things that we are supposed to do and all the things that we do that our affection, our affection slips away from the goodness of God and the grace of Christ. Wise people, deep people, watch their lives. They watch their worship. They guard their steps. They listen deeply. They listen deeply. They cultivate a posture of surrender and humility with an ear to listen towards God. And then they repent thoroughly. They repent thoroughly of all the illusions, of all the misplaced affections. Wise people in their worship of God. Deep people in their worship of God. Healthy churches and their worship of God are people and churches who are watching, guarding, listening, and repenting. Those are the sacrifices that God is after. He's not after all the songs all the time. He's not after all the stuff that we do and the ways we busy ourselves. Not any Godward affection towards him of the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifices that God wants are hearts that are surrendering increasingly in depth and humility towards him. People who are watching, listening, and repenting. Turning from the things that have robbed their affections and turning towards him as the one true source of joy and meaning and purpose. This is what Solomon gets into next. We have to approach right. We have to listen deep. And we have to repent honestly. Look at verse 2. Now we're going to move. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow before God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice? and destroy the work of your hands. Solomon's not making something up here. He's actually paraphrasing something that God had said in the book of Deuteronomy. He said this in Deuteronomy 23, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Here's what happens. When people worship God, when we come together, let's narrow it down to the gathered worship of God's people. When we come together on Sunday, here's what tends to happen. We come in and to remind us of our necessity to approach God with the right heart, with the right posture, we always begin with what we call a call to worship. One of the pastors always stands up and says, this is why we come here. Let's not forget why we're here, that we are responding to God's initiative in our life. He is a holy God and we are a sinful people and he has made this approach to him possible by his grace. This is why we're here. Let's don't presume to approach wrongly. And then God speaks to us through his scriptures. We believe that in the preaching of God's word and the reading of God's word, God speaks to his people and our response is to surrender and to listen 
And what oftentimes happens when we come together and the scriptures are preached, and the Bible is read, the word of God goes out, the spirit of God begins to do some work inside your heart. What will happen is something that is said from the scriptures will prick your mind or your conscience. Something will become aware to you in a way that you weren't aware before. That's what we call conviction. Rarely does anything I ever say from my own opinion convict somebody, but when the word of God goes forward, which is why it's central to what we do, the Holy Spirit works in that word and brings conviction to your hearts. And here's what happens. You get convicted and you think, ah, I never saw that. I never realized that. I never noticed that in my heart and in my life before. God, here's what I'm going to do. When I leave today, I'm going to walk away from that thing. Here it is, God, for if you just come and and help me in this, I promise that never again will I do that. Never again will I say this. Never again will I go there. Never again will I do that thing. I promise, God, just, just do this. And I'll do that. The Holy Spirit of God brings conviction into our soul. And in a rash moment of foolishness, we make these silly vows before God. And our attempt to bargain with God that if he'll just get us out of this circumstance, just get us out of this situation, and I promise, I promise I'll do better. I promise I'll leave that person or that thing or that situation. And we make these foolish vows. And then we leave. We get in our cars. We wait a couple of minutes to get out of the parking lot. By the time we get to the next place we've gone, we've forgotten everything we've already said. Everything we felt. Everything that at that moment was so right, so intentional, so purposeful. One of the reasons... Just to be honest, man, one of the reasons that we do this, one of the reasons we respond this way is because as a people, not just in the church, but just humanity in general, we don't actually think that our word means much of anything. We don't actually think that our word means much of anything. It's why we have contracts. It's why we have attorneys. Because we don't believe the vows that we make mean anything. Because we don't believe that our word means anything. And so with ease, we can make all these rash vows before God. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's how I'm going to live. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's the person I'm going to be. Here I go. And all along, we don't, really, we don't really think our word means anything. Here's the thing. The sacrifices that God's after. What he's looking for in his people. He's looking for confession. He's working for a posture, looking for a posture of humility. A posture that listens to his word and confesses where their affections are wrong and turns towards him in dependence in his grace. He's looking for a people who repent honestly. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a people who listen to him deeply and who repent and who turn towards him Honestly. And here's the thing, confession and repentance, there's never a good time for it. I mean, really. There's never really an easy time for it. There's never really a good time. I mean, when in your relationships with other people, married folk, when is, the, when is a good time to tell your spouse something that you've done wrong? I mean, there's never a good time. You always think you've got to create a circumstance or create a situation. Let's go to dinner. Let's do this. Let's get this. And when I give you this present and I've treated you this way, that'll be the good time to slip in my half-hearted apology and my half-hearted confession because at least at that point, if you respond the wrong way or respond in anger, then I can look like you, that you were ungrateful for what I did. and We've shifted the tables. There's never a comfortable time to repent and confess What God is after are people who listen deeply, who trust with all that they are, and who repent honestly, who just repent honestly. We don't have to calculate the best time to come to God when we've we've had a good week and we've done a lot of good things to come to him and say, now here's this thing I've been 
trying to keep away from you as if he didn't know. We don't have to calculate a time when God's going to respond right, when we play just the right song, we preach just the right message, and the band comes up at just the right time and starts the music at just the right moment. That's a good time. Now, now I'm going to tell God I feel good. It's one of the reasons we don't do altar calls here. This is one of the reasons we don't do altar calls here. We do not come in here with any kind of <clears throat> attempt or agenda to manipulate a particular response from you because I don't want you to make a vow you can't keep. I don't want you to make a vow you have no intention of keeping. I have no desire to come in here and play music in a certain way and speak in a certain way and order what we do in a certain way that whips you up into a particular frenzy that you're expecting and creates a particular emotion that you're anticipating so that at that right time you can then try to be honest before God. Like you're waiting for me to do something so that you can respond with the very sin that you feel convicted by. We don't do that. We don't do that. We come. We listen. We trust that God speaks. And then we give a time after the sermon, a time of reflection where we take a few moments to confess, where you have time to be alone before God, where you have time to pray, where you have time to revisit the vows that you've made before God and look to see whether you've kept them or not. You have time to confess and repent before God and make a vow with God in a right posture between you and him. You have the time and your conscience before God to approach him rightly and to listen to him deeply and to respond to him wholeheartedly and honestly. That's what we do. In his grace, he speaks and we respond. He speaks and we respond. We preach, he speaks, we respond. And we respond with confession. Honest, deep, lasting confession. Look at what he says in verse 7. For when dreams, when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. So here's what tends to happen in this great American evangelical illusion. We come in and we presume upon God and come in in this posture that it's all about us. We come in here and we want everything to be about us and we sing songs about us and we preach sermons about all the things that we can do for God and it's all about you and it's all about me and it's all about us and we make big proclamations with our lives and make big pronouncements with our words and we make big vows before God. This is who I'm going to be this week. This is what I'm going to do this week. This is who I'm going to be. This is the vision that God's given me this week for my week in my life. And we make these big pronouncements and these big judgments. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Dreams are easy. Big pronouncements and proclamations, that's the easy part. There's no shortage of people with big dreams, big visions of who they're going to be and what they're going to do. Living that out every single day, that's the hard part. That's the hard part. That's the worship that God is after. And we're not a people who come in and make big proclamations about all the things we're going to do for God. We want to be a people who come and surrender our hearts and surrender our souls. We ask God to do very big and great things in us. To change our rebellion to humility. To change our attempts at self-atonement into acceptance of his grace and forgiveness. We come in and we presume upon God to do large things in very sinful hearts. We don't come in and presume upon God for all the things that we're going to do to him and for him. All kinds of dreams, all kinds of visions, they come with a lot of vanity. More words, more vanity. Living every single day. That's the hard part. So we have to approach God rightly. We're going to avoid this illusion. We've got to remember who we are coming to worship, who our lives are lived in response to. We have to let that shape our understanding of who we are and how we live. We have to guard our steps in this life to worship God rightly because we can worship a lot of things the wrong way. And God is after the right worship of him in the right way with all that we are. So we have to guard our steps. We need to listen deeply. We need to fight for our souls to surrender to his word. That he would give us ears to hear. Postures of humility to listen to his word, to desire, to desire everything that he has for us and will say to us in his word to listen deeply.
And then as he speaks, and as his word does his work in our hearts, not only as we gather, but in our lives day in and day out, that we'll repent honestly. We'll repent completely. We won't try to manipulate and calculate the right time to, to presume and come in there and think that because we've said something the right way that God will then forgive us. No, we repent honestly and deeply when we're convicted. We turn towards God in humility and dependence. And then lastly, the last part of verse 7, all of that culminates in this one thing. We need to then live. Live not only together here, but in the places that God has put us. We need to live in awe of him. He said in verse 7, when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Foolish worship. Worship that's been captured by this American evangelical illusion is worship that thinks that everything is about them. Or at least it should be. That everything that we do and everything that we say and all that we're about should be about us. Or at least it should be. But right worship begins and ends with a posture of all. A posture of humility. A posture of all before who God is. And in between, it's a life lived in response to the greatness, the sufficiency, the grandeur of who God is for us. I mean, corporately, for so many of us, the Sunday gathering can become so mundane, so routine, if we forget these things, if we fail to guard our steps, if we fail to cultivate ears that listen and hearts that want to surrender, if we fail to repent deeply and honestly and completely and appropriately for all that captures our heart, all of this stuff can just become mundane. It can just become habit. You can get the rhythm. We're going to come in and do this and say this and do this, and Robert's going to say this, and we're going to respond this way, and we're going to do this thing. And you can just go through the motions, never realizing, never taking stock for a moment that your hearts have drifted far away. We can come in and do all the right things, missing God while thinking that we're worshiping Him. But there's no surrender, there's no listening. There's no humility. There's no repentance. We can come in and church can be the gathered worship of God. It can be an effort in our own self-realization. I was at this place a couple of years ago when I was in California. The final nail in the coffin that convinced me I could never live in California. Um, I'm just too Southern. I was in this great little town in Encinitas, California, which is the home of the Self-Realization Fellowship. And I was able to get a little tour of the place. Unbelievable place. Um, cuckoo place. But I was struck. I was struck. I just closed my eyes and listened to the message. Listened to the mission. Listened to the things that they were after. And just how similar it was to this American evangelical illusion. It's all about me. It's all about me doing something for God. It's all about what I have to give and contribute. And when that begins to creep in, begins to grab our hearts and shape our attentions, we come into the place of worship with God's people and we begin to presume and take upon a posture of looking around and going, I like that. I like that. I don't really like that. That would serve me better if it went that way. This is what I think I really need. Never once stopping. Never once stopping. Just slowing down for just a second. Just a millisecond. To ask, is my life pleasing to God? Is my worship pleasing to God? Have I made rash vows before God that I've never kept? Do my prayers, do my prayers please God? Does my life please God? It's all about me. It's all about what I need 
and what I want, what I should get, and how that should happen. That will gather a crowd. That will gather a crowd. My fear is that that will become all too easy for us to slip into and be deceived by. And we'll look around one day because something will happen and we'll realize that all along, all of that stuff kept us, deceived us, dulled us to the reality that with all of those things does not naturally come depth. And we'll find ourselves a mile wide as a people and then as individuals before God. A mile wide, but only an inch deep. And in the end, all that stuff, all those things without right affection for God, right worship of God for who he is in response to what he's done, it all amounts to the fool's worship. It's worship like a fool. And we need to listen to what God has to say through Solomon because if anybody understands this, he does. If anybody understands this, he does. The man who lived in humility before God asked God for wisdom and God, because of his humility, granted him that wisdom that has exceeded every man who has walked the face of the earth since him used by God to build this temple, this place where the Spirit of God amongst His people dwelled in its most intense presence, this place that took seven years and 153,000 people to build, this place that was just this unbelievably majestic place for the worship of God to take place. A man who saw his life used by God to do that. A man who saw his life touched by God because of the humility he showed before God a man who also became just as famous and infamous for his indiscretions before God, whose heart wandered from God, who understood what it was like to see all the stuff happen, to build the big places, to get all the attention of the people, to direct the people and how they should respond to this great and living God, knew what it was like for his heart to be far from him. Far from him. And I think if those scholars are right, and Ecclesiastes is a repentant Solomon, it's a Solomon looking back on all of that. I think if anybody has something to say to us as we go forward, it's this man. If we're going to be a people who find ourselves living a life of right worship before God for who he is and understanding of who we are and our life is an accurate response to his grace to us, if we're going to be a community, a church that lives to worship God, to that exists to bring him glory through the lives that we live and the dependence we have upon his grace. We're going to have to be a people to listen to what Solomon has to say, and we're going to have to guard our steps. We're going to have to guard our steps, guard our hearts, watch our lives, pursue the things in our lives that cultivate that affection for Christ and walk away from the things that rob us of that joy. They're not bad in themselves. For whatever reason, they keep my heart from finding joy in the gospel. And I don't need that. I don't, I'm, I'm not losing anything. I'm gaining joy. I'm not losing anything. We need to be people who guard our steps and who listen deeply, who can come together with an anticipation, an expectation, and a humility to listen deeply to what God has to say in his word. We want to be a people who hear from our good father as his kids who trust him and his will for us and his goodness towards us, who want to listen. We have people who respond to that rightly, who repent honestly and deeply. Who repent honestly and deeply. That will produce a people and a life that is lived in awe. In awe of who God is for us in Jesus. That's what we're after. That's what he wants. That's what he has created us for. And by God's grace, my prayers, and that's what he is creating us into. Week in and week out, increasingly, a people who are living in awe of who he is for us in Jesus.
That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for us. And that's what I pray God continues to do because you know what he's doing it. He's doing it. Let me encourage you. Amidst the growth, amidst the stuff, amidst the busyness, depth is being had. It's being had. We want it to keep going. We want it to keep going. Never want to replace it. Never want it to stop. And so my prayer for us, my prayer for you, is that God continue to do that. Cultivate a passion in us to live in all of him. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. It's going to be a little bit different than normal because of the lunch. What I'm going to do is I'm going to call you to respond to God in, in these ways. I'm going to take a couple of minutes when I'm done, and I want you to sit and I want you to reflect we do this every single week in this time of reflection. When the sermon is done, when the teaching is done, we have some questions on your bulletin and some questions that will come up on the screen. And they're, they're, they're intentional and they're, they're written to help you just deal with what was said, digest what was said, but more than anything, reflect on your heart. And it's kind of a gut check, kind of a heart check. Where am I in this? What things do I need to confess? What vows have I made rashly that I have not kept? What vows, what commitments do I need to make to God? What do I need to confess? What do I need to repent from? What do I need to turn to? We want to take a couple of minutes for you to do that. That's responding to the word of God being spoken. That's one way that we respond as we reflect and we think. Normally then, we respond as God's people together by taking communion. We take communion remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in our place for our sins. We take communion remembering that he has done what we could not do to make reconciliation with God and transformation into his image possible. This morning, we're not going to do that. As, as a people, we're not going to take communion that way together this morning, but we're going to go in the end and celebrate a, a meal together. You can almost call it a communion meal to some degree, um, together as his people. Instead, we're going to reflect, and then we're going to respond to what we do normally after communion, as the band comes back up, they're going to lead us into responding to God with our mouths in, in, in music, in musical response, musical worship to who God is for us. It's one of the things most commanded by God throughout Scripture is that we sing. A repentant people, a deep people, a people continually learning to live in awe of who God is for us in Jesus are our people who sing. It's why we do it. We don't just do it because tradition says you come to church and you sing. We do it because God commands us to. It's a natural response to an awe, to a heart that is becoming unbelievably captured by the grace of God. And so this morning the band is going to play as we end our time of reflection and we're going to sing. And we're going to celebrate with our mouths, with our mouths, make noise with our mouths, speak with our mouths praise to who God is for what he's done. And then, generally, as that time comes to an end, we don't just dismiss. We, we don't just see our time as kind of ending and the clock stopping and we go on about our lives. But every single week, we try to remind ourselves that as we finish that time of corporate musical celebration to God, God then sends his people out to live a life of worship before him. We're actually sent out to the places that God has called us to be in this time. He knew that place. He knew what he was doing in you. And he foreordained before the creation of anything that existed. You would be right here in this place right now to live a life of worship before him. So we remind ourselves every week that we're responding, even when we leave, to who God is and what he is doing. That we live a life in a posture of response to him. This morning, we'll actually send ourselves across the, the stage to the cafeteria to celebrate his grace in the life of this church. Before we do that, let me pray, and then I'm going to give you some time to just reflect. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your action coming into this world and suffering under the hands of sinful and rebellious people, for giving yourself over as a sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the Father in that. And God, thank you for vindicating that sacrifice and raising Jesus from the dead. And we, because of that, we have real hope of real change, real transformation, real life right now. 
God, help us as a people, individually but corporately as your people, as this church in this place. Lord, to find our hearts, to find our hearts shielded from this illusion, this American evangelical illusion that so desperately wants to attach itself to your people. Lord, help us to guard our lives and guard our steps in such a way, Lord, that we can smell it a mile away. We can push back against it a mile away, that we won't settle for it, but we'll always be a people as things get bigger and things get broader that are constantly looking to go deeper. They're constantly looking to go deeper. Help us to be a people whose roots go down deep into a dependence upon your grace. Lord, we ask this, that because of that, your glory will be what's cherished. Your goodness will be what's celebrated. Your capacity will be what comes to the forefront, not our own. When this happens, Lord, a great name is made for you, and that's what we want. We want to exist and bring you glory. Lord, do this. Do this, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen.